0: good morning again everyone we're uh, going through our commands of Jesus series um, right now and today we're talking about Jesus's commands that he gives us to uh, to be righteous and to be pure uh, and what that means and so I selected that verse because I thought I'd take the most intimidating one I could um, and then we'll talk about that so I'm going to pray and then we'll get into God's Word Father God thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us so that we can know your will for us. We ask that you open it to our hearts and open up our hearts to what you have to say to us through it. In the name of your son Jesus Christ we ask this. Amen. So Jesus commands us to be righteous and he commands us to be pure. Righteousness being this condition of acting correctly in the eyes of God. So Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And we're commanded to be pure, and purity is the condition of cleanness, of being without stain or blemish. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Is in verse 8 of Matthew 5. So righteous and pure, but how much do we know about those terms when we use them? Those definitions can be a little unclear and do righteousness and purity really matter? Can one be righteous and unclean? Christ certainly seems to characterize the Pharisees as being um, technically clean, but unrighteous in the ways they act. So we know they aren't precisely the same thing, and the story of the gospel is that helpless as we are in our sinfulness, our uncleanness, our unrighteousness, Jesus came to deliver us from our damnable state, through no effort of our own. That is the amazing grace we sing of when we sing about amazing grace. And So our own efforts to grapple with purity and righteousness are not the measure by which we enter the kingdom of God or not. The measure by which we enter the kingdom is Jesus's righteousness. And amen for that. But then Jesus goes on to say a passage like this. Let me just repeat that one again for emphasis. You have heard it was said I don't like being put in this position where I can't take one of Jesus' commands literally. It's much easier when they're straightforward. At least when Jesus talks about um, having to, to hate our family as a prerequisite for loving him, we understand his meaning by that, obviously enough. Jesus is our number one priority. We're called out of our previous lives into one that begins with him, and nothing can get in the way of that. That's the kind of hyperbolic teaching I can get behind right away, but... It is not easy to get around the fact that in this passage, it really sounds like Jesus is advocating eye-gouging and hand-chopping. There's no denying that the plainest reading of this text is him saying that you become impure at the level of your temptation to sin, not at the level of action. And if you don't deflect sin at the level of temptation at any cost, then you'll be destroyed. So we might say, well this is just Jesus being hyperbolic about the action we need to take. We don't need to get all amputate about this. This is about removing temptation from our path. Really? Do we do that? Mostly not. The idea of, of men lusting at the, at the sight of women is particularly powerful as an illustration because men are so visual. Um, and Islam wrestles with a similar idea in their, uh, in their moral code. This, It's the rationale behind the veil that Muslim women often wear to shield them from the eyes of men to prevent the men from having lustful thoughts. This is because hair was and is in cultures, uh, particularly in the Middle East, considered a particularly alluring feminine trait, and so they cover it up with the hijab. There's a little bit of that idea in 1 Corinthians when they command women to cover up their hair in church as well. Now, The problem with the head covering, however, is that Once the hair is off the table, men are perfectly capable of being fascinated by any other part of a woman's physiology. Can't see her hair, but oh, how about that face? So then they'll cover the face with a greater veil. Can't see the face, but what about that general shape? That's something to talk about. And they'll cover that up with a veil as well. Can't see a general shape, but how about those eyes? Those are some fine-looking peepers. And then you can get the full sort of Saudi niqab with the mesh over the eyes and the gloves and everything. This is not a uniquely Muslim cultural phenomenon. It's not just the way that a certain people group thinks. The West does it too, just in reverse. You could assemble a time lapse uh, slideshow of women's fashion over the last hundred years and watch the skirt hem like fire up um, from the ground up to around the waist. Uh, Scandalously revealing ankles back in the 20s, not a scandal anymore. Okay, calves, not a scandal anymore. Until today, when we have fashion designers who are struggling to push boundaries because they're running out of places to remove fabric. So you go, Here's yesterday's dress. I guess we'll just remove the whole back of it. I mean, everything down to the tailbone, everything around the ribs, slice it down both sides. Can we just make the whole thing out of glad wrap and glass beads? I mean, can this be done? the objective there is not to find a solution to that problem but to find a a place that doesn't trigger social alarm but does escalate temptation that's the purpose of Western fashion so to bring us back around, do we have to gouge out our eyes or not? or at least wear blindfolds when we leave the house because this is a serious issue for men particularly, although women are hardly immune but we know because of the way that women's clothing grows or shrinks depending on cultural values. There's a part of a man's brain that, is, that generates that, that uh, sensually enticing suggestion that will adjust itself to whatever's available. You can't outmaneuver it. It will find out a way to find women attractive. And I have a feeling that if you poked a guy's eyes out, he would become very interested in female voices. And that dance could go on and on and on with the only solution being death or a chemically induced coma. But Jesus says, this is so important that it is worth spilling blood over. And in the Old Testament, people died over matters of righteousness and purity fairly regularly. If an Israelite violated one of God's laws, even the the purity laws, which seem to be about mostly personal behavior, what you eat, what you wear, when you do so... Violating those laws made you impure and unrighteous. At best that meant you were a social outcast and needed to be put outside the camp for a couple of days for a cleansing period, people couldn't hang out with you. At worst it meant that your friends and neighbors would kill you with stones over a matter of collecting sticks on the Sabbath or a mutually voluntary sexual encounter, actions that do not at least directly hurt people righteousness and purity are important enough before God to kill and die over. Why? Well it might be worth looking at what the ancient Israelites were talking about when they were striving to obey these purity laws for the first time. What is the world like for God's people at that time? Why did they have these laws? What did they understand them to be for? And Why did violating them make them impure? Why did it really matter to them? And why does it really matter to us if God sent Jesus to pay for the price of mankind's impurity and unrighteousness anyway? So archaeologists have been digging around in, uh, in the area of where Canaan used to be in Israel for a long time. And one of the interesting things they, they tend to find, uh, they'll find ruins of fairly nicely constructed houses, well constructed showing some skill and expertise, and they'll be filled with terrible pottery sort of lumpen, misshapen pottery in jars. And this is weird because for an archaeologist to find bad pottery in a good house is unusual. One of the first things a culture usually does is learn how to make pretty good pots because that's where you keep stuff. And suddenly after that you start making pretty good houses. It's evidence of an incredibly primitive people who moved into the recently vacated homes of a more advanced people. The Israelite sons of slaves in the desert, who grew up in the desert incidentally. They didn't even know how to make the bricks that they were making in Egypt. Uh, Those guys with about zero skills between them, aside animal husbandry from the flocks they were bringing along with them, moving into the Canaanite cities and dwellings it wasn't just a a bunch of new rules that God was deploying upon an already civilized people to add to their sense of what it was to be a society. It was a rule set given to twelve tribes designed to forge them into one nation for the first time from the ground up with scrubby pottery to begin with but big plans for the future. They were to be united by their commonalities and their common love for God and divided from the world he was working to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. This was God's promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, from Genesis twelve, three, Israel was supposed to be a preeminent feature among the nations, kind of a leader of nations, and to do that it had to be distinct from them. And we get a prophetic vision in the book of Isaiah about what this was really supposed to end up looking like, at least in the way that the ancient Jews could comprehend it in Isaiah 66. This is a vision of the new heavens and the new earth from verse 17 in Isaiah 66. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eats the flesh of pigs and rats and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one who they follow, declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal in Greece, and to the distant islands that have not yet heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your people from all nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels says the Lord they will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels and I will select some of them also to be Levites and priests says the Lord so the the world was meant to see Israel to see them faithfully following the Lord's ways and then to be drawn to follow their Lord. They were meant to be deliberately distinct for that purpose. So when God commands the Israelites not to eat pork or shellfish or to wear clothes made of two kinds of thread or not to marry outside of their nation, it's not because God hates prawns or because he hates 50-50 polycotton shirts or because he hates interracial marriage. It's because the Jews were meant to be distinct from the people of the world so that they could be a lure to the world and following these commands made the Israelites righteous because they were well, it would have if they had followed them. It would make them righteous and, and right both in English and in Hebrew means straight, it means precise, it means in line, a right angle is an angle between the ground and something standing upright upon it. Right means an accurate measure of something. Like when a carpenter is sanding wood true, he is rendering it into the right shape. And the right answer to a question is the true one. To be righteous was to be truly in line with the standard that God has established for men. And to be pure meant to be made clean, to be free of dirt and imperfections. To be purely one thing and not another thing. Pure water is water that isn't mixed with anything, pure nonsense is a sentiment which has absolutely no sense in it. To purify is to scrape away or wash away or burn away everything that can't endure the washing or scraping or burning. To puree fruit is to blend it from distinct portions into a seamless goop. A Puritan is one who compromises nothing of all their principles. To be pure is to be that one thing from top to bottom. Now, English is an amazing language, and I love it, but one of its weaknesses is that its words are so far away from their roots that sometimes we don't quite get the impact of their origins. To us, righteous and pure can mean righteous and pure. like That's the, as deep as those words can go. But to the Hebrews, who would become the Jews, to be righteous meant to be conformed to the standard of God, the standard that God had established for men. And to be pure meant to be genuinely that kind of righteous person all the way down, head to toe, private and public. And they also understood these words as having a corporate dimension, indeed a very important nationwide corporate dimension. God was the God of Israel. And the reason the Israelites needed to be pure and righteous was because Israelites made up Israel which was meant to be this beacon to the nations. The reason they would kick people out or kill them for being unrighteous or impure was not because God hates adultery so much he wants adulterers to suffer and die. It's because God established his rules and the individuals who disobey those rules become impure. And the nation that accepts disobedience to God as a matter of course can't possibly set an example to the nations about working in obedience with God. They're trying to think big. They have a worldwide plan of God put before them to purify the world, to make the world righteous, in a way. And they know that it's supposed to start through them. They're the ones who they've been promised that God would bless the world through. No pressure. Just act righteously, and you might just save the world. I mean we have to grasp how big this idea of purity is in their minds to center it rightly in ours. The ancient Hebrews get this purity law. it's rules about being righteous at the same time that Moses codifies and makes official all the stories and history about creation that their ancestors have been passing around, that they've grown up with. So the rules on how they are to be a nation and to conduct their lives purely and the stories of their past and the creation of the world are all bound up together by Moses in the Torah, in the law. It's given to them as they're going into the Holy Land to fulfill this promise to Abraham that all nations in the world will be blessed through him. And now they understand it a bit more in long form. All the nations of the world will be made righteous through you. And they know the stakes of this promise because the foundational story upon which their cultural identity is built the thing they understand the world through is knowing that God made a pure and righteous world in which people sinned making it impure and now that world is no longer true to God's purpose for it and that impurity spiraled so wildly out of control that the only solution remaining was to purge it with a global flood, one simple action, sinful action amplifying out to corrupt the entire world. And the Israelites were given a sacred destiny by God. A corrupt world is too far gone to save, but maybe it can be purified through a righteous nation. And that is what they were desperately trying to be a righteous nation, so righteous that the world would come knocking at their door asking to be like them. They were trying to defeat sin at the national level because it was too strong at the global level. But that didn't quite work out, did it? The Israelites encounter challenges, bad leaders, bad people, marriages to foreign nations which brings them false gods, which causes them to stumble constantly. Elements of their nation get corrupt and they make that nation impure. So the problem is moved down one step. Now, sin's not just too strong at the world level, it's too strong at a national level. Impurity can't be solved at the level of a nation because parts of that nation are corrupt, which makes it impure. But they might be a little bit ready for that. There's provision in the law to follow this down another level. So the nation of Israel is corrupt. We'll do what Moses provisioned, what God approved, and we'll build a temple. That temple will be staffed exclusively by one tribe of Israelites, the most pure tribe. The Levites, their job will be purity. They will handle the sacrifices and the rituals. They'll symbolically take the nation's guilt onto themselves. Maybe we can win this at the tribal level because we can't win it at the national level. But guess what? Levites are people too. And the most galling single crime that occurs in the Old Testament is performed by a Levite in Judges 19, not for the faint of heart. So from within the tribe of Levites, Now there's a particular family, the priestly family, and they will take on a higher office again. They'll take the sins all the way up from the tribe of Levi. Maybe we can win this at the family level. But guess what? Priests are people too, and they are flawed and corrupt. And more than once, Israel realizes their priests are corrupt, often when God strikes them dead, but not always. Sometimes just in a moment of clarity. And they swap them out for another family from the Levites. Now you can see the desperate doomed juggling that Israel is trying to do. They are trying to save the world to make it pure, in a phrase, to take the sins of the world upon themselves. To be pure enough that a corrupt world is washed clean by them. But they can't stop the corruption at the national level. So the Levites will take the sins of the nation upon themselves, but they can't stop it at the tribal level. So the priest will take the sins of the tribe upon them. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, the Jews are floundering around at the individual level. The Pharisees are trying to be professionally pure and upright personally. And their genuine belief is that if they can be pure enough and righteous enough, then they can police others being pure enough and righteous enough. And they can kind of get the wheel turning the other way. If they can get everyone righteous enough for a period of time, Then the nation would be pure enough for God to send his Messiah. He'll kick out these these Gentiles who are making Israel impure. And we'll flip the whole cycle on its head. The world is too corrupt. The nation is too corrupt. The tribes are too corrupt. The families are too corrupt. Can we stop the corruption of the family at the individual level by following these purity laws individually to a T? And Jesus arrives on the scene and says, No, you can't. All you individuals are corrupt. No individual can be pure enough to purify anyone, let alone his family, let alone the world. And if you can't stop it by being a pure enough individual, how do you stop the corruption of the world? Jesus says, good question. Jesus says it needs to be stopped at the level of the temptation to the individual sin. You have to get in below the individual offending action that makes the individual family, tribe, and world warped against its creator. Jesus says if you want to avoid sinning, well, sin happens inside. It happens mentally. So if you have a sinful hand, maybe if you chop that off, maybe what's left of you will be pure enough to compensate. Earlier in this same chapter, Jesus says this, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. These guys want to be the individuals who are capable of absorbing the sin of the world. Well, they'd better be better than these guys here who are professionally trying to be pure. They are not pure enough. It needs to go down another level and that's just not something that we can do. One needs to go down to the level of Corruption by sin at the sin itself. And not lose that battle once. Because once you do, you are one part sinful and another part not sinful. And that is the definition of impure. Not the one thing all the way through. Jesus is describing here before the Pharisees and the people of Judea the situation they are in. Their sin is bone deep. There is no one righteous, not one. And since they are all losing that battle of temptation... At the level of temptation to sin, they are losing it on an individual level, on a family level, on a tribe level, on a national level, and the world is going down with it. Jesus is not with these words about how deadly temptation is. He is not providing a solution to their problem. He is highlighting how bottomless their problem is. Because you can divide up a tribe into families, and you can divide families into individuals, and even individuals maybe into their actions, but you can't really take apart the individual and those actions. You can't put the good part of you on one side and the bad part on the other side. That's as far down as we can go. And the hope of chasing purity and righteousness has backed these would-be righteous individuals into a corner and by extension the world with them. Because righteous as the Pharisees are, they are not righteous enough. And if they're not righteous enough, then no one could be righteous enough to beat corruption at that level of the individual action and temptation. Of thinking just maliciously about a brother or making sinful plans in the mind, even if you don't end up following through. No one can do that until Jesus, who shows up on the scene, sent by God, who is baptized to fulfill all righteousness who then goes into the desert to be tempted by the devil, an event that occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels. It's important enough to record three times in scripture. And he begins his ministry on earth by defeating temptation there. And three years later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he finishes in the same way, defeating temptation. Here, finally, is this individual who can beat the corruption of sin at that level of temptation. And thank God for that because no one else had a chance. And what that means for us as individuals means that we can come to Jesus to be purified at the level of our sins. He has the power to win that battle. The immediate effect of that is this promise of forgiveness and eternal life. The lifelong impact is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that progressively purifies us to make us more righteous to isolate in us those parts of us that cause us to sin, and then we let those parts die. This is what it means to die to ourself. The corrupt part of us is being purged, so the righteous part can thrive in the kingdom of God. And a funny thing happens when you live righteously in the context of your family and your friends, those closest to you. Often it can cause divisions, like Jesus warned about, but there is no end to the number of testimonies about sons led to Christ by their mothers, about husbands led to Christ by their wives, about friends led to Christ by one another. Jesus saves you at the level of you as an individual, and once that happens, you are empowered by him to act as a righteous force in that kind of immediate circle, at the level of your family. They'll still need to meet Jesus personally, of course, but that's what we call evangelism. And God working through you for the forgiveness of others. And after that, a righteous family has the power to impact a community as a whole, to purify at the level of the tribe. That's what we call the church. And when community has the power, once its elements are brought into line with the saving Son of God, to impact on a national scale, that's what we call mission. And the righteous nation, in line with the commands of God, composed of individuals who pursue the words of His Son, can move the whole world towards righteousness. I don't know if we have a word for that anymore. We used to call it civilization, but that word might not have been a good fit, and so now it's so loaded with connotations it's almost poisoned. But we know it's not our hand or our eye that really makes us sin. It's the sinful core inside us that we can't get away from or cut off. And so each of us needs a personal relationship with the Savior to be made righteous. And once you've been made righteous, your life and the way you live it, listening to the Holy Spirit and letting those sinful parts of you die, that's significant not just for you and the improvement of your life and your work with God, but as your contribution to God's ongoing work to lift a righteous world out of a corrupt one. You're part of a plan of that scale. We know that there will be a day when the Lord purifies the world of those who refuse to turn to him, those who will not be made righteous, those who stubbornly choose to be divided from God's world. But though we wait on that day, don't turn away from those parts of your life that the Holy Spirit is working in you to purify. It's that work in you that makes you a righteous individual. And righteous individuals are what God is using to build his kingdom in this world and the next one. Let's pray together. Father God, Your son showed the world that he alone was the conqueror of sin and the cure for sin, the sin that we've all partaken in. We praise you for saving us. We ask that you hold us to your standards and empower us with your Holy Spirit to meet them. Make us righteous in your eyes so that our families will be drawn to you. Make our families righteous so that our communities will be drawn to you. Make our church communities righteous, Lord, so that our nation will walk in your ways. And make our nation obedient and hungry for a revival of your word, Father, so that the whole world will know that you are God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.